Hello, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Uh, so this is uh, going to be fairly free form, uh, and I, I would appreciate any comments, tips. Anyone wants to say anything, raise your hand while we're going through. Um, this is going to be some, a lot of listening and just some some rules that I've discovered along the way and a little bit of uh, history to begin. So uh, I'm going to start by sort of talking about, come on in. Uh, for the people just coming in, this is Audio in Space. I'm uh, Tim Halber. We're just getting started. And uh, basically, I started, um, I'm going to do just some, a brief history of, uh, here. But I started uh, doing a lot of, uh, I was a broadcasting major. I did a lot of sound for theater. And so uh, I started kind of learning about radio and really being into radio drama and then getting involved in putting sounds into physical theaters and putting speakers in certain places and, and that sort of thing. Uh, that got me, um, I then went and did an internship at KQED Radio in San Francisco, did some public radio there, some reporting, got a taste of that, and then went on to uh, work with a group called Antenna Audio. And uh, Antenna, uh, was a really interesting, funky, funky world. Before that, as you'll see in this picture here, go back maybe, um, you know, uh, almost 50 years. And uh, there's a picture somewhere, which I couldn't find, of a woman in a gallery wearing a giant reel-to-reel -reel machine <laughs> and an earpiece and actually walking around getting told about the art uh, while she's lugging this machine around. I couldn't believe that they, they actually did that. But, but that was sort of the beginning of this idea of interpretation of art in a, in a space and giving you something to walk around with. And the beauty of that, that people discovered, was that it doesn't get in the way of your experience of experiencing a piece of art, because uh, unlike what a visual device would do. And uh, interestingly, now that we have these portable devices that all have visuals as well, it's almost going the other way. People are finding ways to combine visuals and audio, and you know, there's a lot of talk about whether that's a good idea or not. Um, so uh, there's this, there was this world of these audio interpretation devices, and a lot of what uh, was happening, unfortunately, got, uh, gave this a bad rap, because what was happening was curators are notoriously protective of their content and what people learn about it and what is said about a piece of art. So uh, a lot of the production became very dry and uh, people were hearing a very didactic presentation. So uh, fast forward to early 90s, late 80s, uh, Antenna Audio is born and um, it's a theater company that was using headsets as part of the, the performance. They were doing audio productions where they would cut up the sound, put remote transmitters on people, and people would walk around, and there would be pantomime. It's very hard to explain, and it was very experimental and, and, and interesting stuff. And uh, in order to fund that, they made a wild card bid, because they were local in the Bay Area, to produce a tour for Alcatraz. And Alcatraz kind of just blew everything out of the water and kind of set this new mold of uh, creating an interesting exhibit um, interpretation in space. And a lot of what was happening, how many people have heard the Alcatraz tour? So a lot of what happens on that tour is they actually, um, it's an interesting combination of interviews with guards and, uh, and former prisoners. And this was kind of like very 
cutting edge to have interviews. So this was, <laughs> this was kind of where I think that, that first kind of launched. And um, from there, they started, they also included theater, where they recorded people interacting actually in the cells. So you got this experience of the bin sort of this binaural, it was very primitive then, but the surround sound kind of experience of people moving around and putting you in that location. Uh, so I joined up with them, and uh, they're very, they were very theater-based, and I was coming from theater, but also had this very NPR kind of, um, kind of steeping that I'd had, where I, I thought interviews were like were key to getting to the truth, really. And so uh, through me and a few other people who'd worked, um, uh, Allison Dufty, who's here as well, uh, was part of that group too. That really kind of pushed that push this direction towards a more public radio almost kind of kind of feel to um, make it a, a bit more personal experienced when you're going through these exhibits uh, and spaces. Um, so that's kind of like framing here. And I'm gonna, here's people walking through Alcatraz just sort of to give you a, a sense. Again, uh, what I'm gonna be talking about here is I feel like um, I was on this weird parallel track. I worked there at Antenna for eight years. I've probably produced maybe 200 audio tours at this point of various places around the country. And uh, I have some ideas here of what makes that different than uh, listening on the radio or listening. Because once you've put somebody into a space, that added fourth dimension of moving somebody around uh, creates something special, something different that you really have to take into account when you're putting together uh, audio production for a tour. So I'm gonna start with a sample here. This is a little bit more in the, the mode of the theatrical. This is for uh, a museum called, um, this is not one of my best highlights, but this is from uh, Pamplin Park. It's a, it's a museum of the Civil War soldier in Virginia and the exhibit, they put this mock-up and you're walking through and it was very much they wanted to immerse you in this feeling of being part of the war and the experience of soldiers. The idea, which was fairly interesting and kind of radical at the time, was that the experience of the Union and the Confederate soldiers were very similar. So this was the putting them together and creating a, a walk-through experience. All right, man, dismount. We'll make camp here. You have entered an Army training camp early in the war. Look around. This could be either a Union or Confederate camp. Both were organized in similar ways. Imagine you are a new recruit arriving here. This might be more people than you have ever seen in one place. You will probably write about your adventures in a diary or letter home, like this soldier. Our camp had now assumed the aspect of a city with social and business features well-defined. It was a scene of activity that would challenge the envy of many of our ambitious towns of today. Private Walker Burford Freeman, 34th Virginia Infantry. Soon you will meet the other members of your regiment. Over the next two or three years, these comrades will become like a second family to you. But first, everyone must learn to use weapons and follow orders. This requires constant practice, or drill, for my part, I like to drill. I think a skirmish drill is the prettiest drill that ever was drilled. Private Lyons Wakeman, 153rd New York Infantry. Even though they fought on opposite sides, the experience of Union and Confederate soldiers was much the same. 
They learned the same drill, spoke the same language, and sang the same songs. Northern and Southern volunteers joined the Army with pride, believing it was their duty. And few, on either side, had any idea what lay ahead. Okay, so a little more on the theatrical side, and you'll hear those character voices. And the character voices, these are actually some fairly good examples of the character voices that we, we did in the past. And I, I have to say they're a mixed bag. I think partly uh, when you're in somebody's ears, when you're in somebody's head and you're walking around, subtlety, as I said, is, is, is definitely called for. And uh, one thing I, I noticed over the years, we, you know, you, we, do a lot of, we did a lot of historic sites, and so letters are a big part of communicating the goal, you know, what's happening at that museum, the interesting stuff. Um, but how do you play that without sounding cheesy? How do you make that character voice come off well, particularly when you compare it to an interview? An interview is intimate, and I'll get to your question, and I encourage people to ask questions as I go. Um, the, um, when you compare that to an interview, and the intimacy of the interview and, and the immediacy of hearing from someone, um, that character voice has to be played really subtle, and it's very easy to tell when it's not authentic and real. Have you created the script? Have you written the script, or have yes. you handed a script? So the, I'm going to give some tips on writing and some tips on production. This one, I worked with the writer pretty closely, but he wrote it himself. Um, so it's back and forth. You know, some of these I wrote and produced, some of them I just produced. Uh, okay. So again, you're a guest in people's heads. Uh, if, you're, if you're moving people around in a space, um, they are at your whim. Unlike listening to radio, um, I was struck yesterday listening to the um, contest winners, which were beautiful and amazing. And I thought, you know, why aren't, there was that sudden feeling like, oh, you know, my audio tour productions are pretty, are, are kind of thin in comparison to this stuff. But then I thought, you know what, that's because you can't have something like that barriers stop that we heard the first day because you would bombard people and they would get lost and overwhelmed. You have to walk people through. So it's all about the user experience. I think that's the, that's the difference, uh, the main difference here in this kind of work is you have to put yourself in that person's shoes. And that means a lot of things which I'll talk about as we go along. Uh, and this is just a quick note on that Pamplin Park tour. I was creating an atmosphere, creating a sort of a theme, a sound bed of, of moving around in that space for people to really get that feel that they're in a camp. And I found very quickly that like just a lot of rustling sound. People, people make a lot of sound when they move around. So if you're creating an atmosphere, there has to be that sound of movement. And another production note from my uh, history with antenna. We did a lot of tours of like, um, some, there's a couple of sound people getting this joke already. So the, uh, here's the red tail hawk. That I did a lot of tours of like creepy Egyptian sound beds for King Tut exhibits and things like that. And this was a standby of you create a sense of mystery with a red tailed hawk, but the red tailed hawk is not native to Egypt. So <laughs> just know that. And you'll hear this in like every car commercial. Did you have a question? So uh, you're saying that you can't be, you know, overly dramatic. You, uh because you're, you're intimate with that, you're trying to create an intimate space. Is that because people are wearing headphones or because they're in a museum? I mean, what's 
I think it's both. It's both. Uh, you're in a space. Uh, it's, I would say it's because you're wearing headphones uh, primarily that that voice I feel goes. It almost goes right into your brain. You're you're in a, you're getting that direction. But also it's that you're moving through a space, and you are balancing listening to the audio and being in that space. Think about when you're on this. When you've okay, we've all like been on our cell phone in the car, even though we're not supposed to. You're on your cell phone, you're talking to somebody, or you've got a headset. You go into a world where you're with that person, talking to that person, and at the same time, you're trying to drive. So it's that same sort of experience, I feel like. You're negotiating space, you're walking around, you're moving with other people, you have to kind of have one ear open for that, but you're also creating an atmosphere and a place, and a mood. Okay, so this is one of my favorite examples. Um, and it's pretty straightforward when you listen to it, but it, I feel like this this told the story really well. And this one I got to write and produce, and this is for uh, Space Center Houston, and it's a museum attached to uh, Johnson Space Center. This is the Apollo 17 command module. It brought astronauts Gene Cernan, Ronald Evans, and Harrison Schmidt safely back from the moon. It's a piece of history, the last vehicle to fly to the moon and back. What you're looking at now is my home, my spacecraft. Astronaut Gene Cernan. It is actually the spacecraft we lifted off the Earth in, flew to the moon in, the one that circled the moon while I took the lunar module and landed on the surface, uh, and the one that brought us home. It's uh, very nostalgic for me to stand here occasionally, as you are now, and, uh, and look at it. All in all, I spent a great deal of time on that 13-day mission in this particular spacecraft. And I know you're looking at it. You're going to say, uh, my golly, that's small. Uh, and three people lived in there, and yes, we did, and yes, it is small, and yes, you notice there's not a bathroom and a shower and a freezer and an icebox, and uh, it was more like camping out. If you look straight through the hatch that's open, you can see uh, there's an area that we call the navigation bay. There's a sextant, there's a telescope down there. We had to uh, use those instruments to uh, find the stars, and we had to tell the computer exactly where those stars were so that we could navigate to the moon. Uh, it's a uh, tried-and-true system, and it, it certainly worked. Walk around to the other side of the command module. Beep, beep, beep. If you look on the underside, uh, you can see the heat shield, and that's a heat shield that literally, like charcoal, ablates or burns away when we come through temperatures, uh, as I remember, three, 4,000 degrees back into the Earth's atmosphere. I felt like I was on the inside of a, of a comet. So um, a bunch of things about this stop uh, to talk about. First, the, those beats I was talking to you about, we, we would script those in. Like one of the differences that I felt we really made when making these audio tours was perfecting them on site, giving people directions, giving people uh, time to move around things and have that experience be seamless. You're in the space. You know, there's not a lot of directions here, but you move somebody around the back we would write asterisks into the script for every second we'd produce, and that would, that would create that, that time and that space for people to have that seamless experience. Um, the other thing, I got a question yesterday after hearing this, that how did you get that guy to be that immediate? The guy had interviewed lots of astronauts before, and he's like, they, they don't break script. How did you get him to do that? And um, part of the... Part of it is always asking, and, and this is something that if you're a news reporter, it's a little anathema. You would go, you would never tell people what to say. But in this case, we always say, okay, look, people are standing in front of this. 
So you're giving them a tour. You're, they're stand, imagine that you're standing there and they're standing next to you and you say, this is, tell them, I'm, you're standing in front of this. Do you do these interviews on site in the spot where the people will be standing? Sometimes. And, you know, we actually found that, that most of the time, if you just frame the question that way, as if, oh, you're standing in front of it. That, and it's often just difficult to get people to the space because they'll be far flung. This recording actually was done with a stringer. Um, and I think he actually was at the museum, but, but we didn't do it in front of it. Can you talk a little bit about um, the narrator, about um, their delivery, your casting of the narrator, what, are you, what tone you're looking for? Sure. You know, whenever I, um, whenever I direct a narrator, I often ended up telling them, I need an NPR delivery. I need something more more straight because a lot of the people that I worked with were actors, people who go into voice work uh, primarily are, are acting. Um, so I would always have to flatten them out and say, and uh, another trick I would do is turn up their headphones. You know, if you're listening to yourself very closely, I think you, you tend to speak a little softer and a little more intimately. Um, the, uh, Today, today there, you know, there are a lot of options for narrators uh, that you can do. I was telling people about, you know, one, one of the reasons we're all here, I think, is that now this type of tour work is, is very accessible. It's very easy for someone to put up a podcast or distribute over the web or, you know, with, with digital production. You know, it's, it's much easier to get your work out there. In, in the past, Antenna and Acoustic Guide kind of had this lock on the audio tour business, and that's just not the case anymore because the, the equipment, the technology has changed so quickly. So uh, one of the things that I've, I've worked with is a site called Voices.com, and you can go on and you put up a script, and 100 voiceover people will send you a sample of them reading that script. So the, the availability of voices and narrators today is, is uh, is amazing. It's still a world where people think that they're big radio announcers. So you get all these auditions that sound like I'm being very, and a lot of very bassy narrators who talk like this. Uh, so you have to give them a lot of direction. But, but just to follow up on that, um, yeah. uh, for those of folks who are at the um, voice coaching session yes. yesterday, uh, uh, were you there? I was not, no. Okay. But the, the drift of both coaches was to find a conversational quality and informality. Yes. Um, and when I hear those two narrators, I hear something that is not that. I agree. And I think, and that is, again, it's, it's clients, where we, the clients want a tone. And uh, I didn't have a choice. I gave them some samples of the type of voice they want, and they want this type, type of voice. And if you go to Space Center Houston, this guy actually represents the feel of the museum in a way that we can't experience right here. Uh, I would always say, I want, you know, I would prefer you go with somebody that sounds more like this. But it's, it's one of the, it's the nature of client work. I'm glad you brought that up. So a uh, quick tip on going back to this, the ship, write about what you can see. Uh, this is something that that is just very important. If somebody is standing in front of, say, a painting, and when you start listening to the person speaking, you've entered a number, you're not sure if you're at the right spot, it's very important to orient people. People get a lot of reward. I think of it almost like a video game. There's a little, there's a token on the other side, and you're like, okay, I've gotten that token. I see 
the, the, the narrator says there's a, a person holding a sword in the painting. You're like, oh, okay, I've seen that. So it, again, you have this responsibility when people are standing there to help them understand where you are and orient them in that space. Uh, and this is an old, you know, everybody probably knows this that's in this room, but I've always felt like you give a little bit of, by letting the person speak before you tell people who they are, you give, you create a little bit of mystery. You create a sense of, oh, I, who is this person? I'm very curious to know. It, I always like to balance the idea of orienting people to what, what's happening with a little bit of mystery so they, that curiosity is piqued as you go along. And give directions for everyone from all directions. So the, the, we, we would always do a walkthrough when we do these exhibits because for the very thing we were just talking about, uh, you want people to see things uh, and you want people to feel like they're in the space and give them the, the perfect seamless experience. Uh, one of the things we learn quickly is you can't say, turn right and walk across the room. Uh, you don't know. Uh, from the point that people have started listening, if they are still there. People are moving around. They're moving around, say you know, you're looking at the, the capsule, they're walking around the other side. They may already be on the other side of the, of the space capsule. So uh, it's important to orient people by doing things like move around to the back or, but not like point them, look for something in the room and say walk over to that. Rachel. Can you just clarify that a little bit? Sure. Well, the one I was just saying, I think, is, is the most important way that we do that is by um, looking for something obvious in the room and saying, walk over to that. Like uh, a lot of, in a museum exhibit, there would often be a vitrine in the middle of the room as, as some case that's holding something. So. so it's almost like, I know this is kind of a weird contradiction, but it's almost like imagining that they're blindfolded that's right that's right that's right and one one interesting thing we got feedback we got once writing a script was we we even said walk over to the painting on the other side of the room they said well that's uh, what if I'm in a wheelchair am I insulted by the fact that you're saying walk over to that I can't walk over to that so uh, there's all kinds of little sensitivities there and a quick little anecdote on the on on that, uh, we would do on some of these tours we use professional narrators, uh, and some of the tours we use celebrities. So, in this case, uh, I flew down to L.A. to record Donald Sutherland to do to narrate this tour, and he had uh, he had the night before, I guess, in Canada, he'd flown back. He'd had dental surgery, some really painful dental surgery. So he was sore. He was whistling a little bit, and he was really, really cranky. Uh, so, uh, and he's used to doing like car commercials. So he's used to popping in. He re he records for like 15 minutes, and then he's done. Uh, and this was these are like 45-minute tours. So we were there for like three hours. So <clears throat> I get back. I edit it all together, and the the sponsor of the exhibit was. Uh, Wachovia Bank, and we don't have Wachovia Banks on the East Coast, and it looks like Wachovia Bank. So I'd, I'd had Donald Sutherland read Wachovia Bank. And this is the main funder of the exhibition, so I'm like, well, wh what am I going to do? And then I was like, Wachovia, wa 
walk over to the, and then I went through the script, and I found a walk over to, and I sliced it together, and it sounded perfect. Uh, so this is going to be a quick example of what not to do, and unfortunately, this is from the most recent project I've worked on. Uh, and uh, again, it's working, it's collaboration, it's working with people. Um, I'm just going to play a little bit of this. Native peoples move throughout the lands and waters that comprise present-day Seattle as a place that they knew through work, through cultivation, through hunting, through fishing, through ties of kith and kin. They saw it, indeed, as a commons, but it's important to understand that Native peoples did not see this as a place where there were not definitions of property and ownership. My name is Matthew Klingel, and I teach history and environmental studies at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. Okay, so I'm going to spare you from the rest of it, but um, uh, the whole production is not bad, but the, the main point I want to make here is uh, this one. Interview the person who was there, not the person who studied it. The, the difference between Gene Cernan telling you, I was here, I was in this, and this was my personal experience, and here are some facts, and a historian who has studied this, this location and has some grand theories about the space, um, that person's thoughts are really interesting, but they rarely play off well when you're, when you're guiding people around a space. I also want to say make sure people don't read. People are always, people are always wanting to read something to you uh, that they've prepared as a statement, and it just, uh, you know this, it never plays. This is an example from a, a, a tour that I got to work on of Chinatown in New York. It was uh, coinciding with uh, Discovery Channel purchased Antenna uh, several years ago, and the they had a program on called China China Revealed, I believe is what it was called, and it was going behind the scenes of the everyday life of people in China. And so we got the idea to do a tour of Chinatown that would do the same thing. That many of the tours of Chinatown focused on the history of uh, gang warfare and like really exotic. Type, type of stuff, and that there is an actual living, breathing community there that we wanted to per portray. Cinotique at 19 Mott Street is an amazing antiques and Asian art store owned and run by Jan Lee, who we heard from earlier. Lee's family has owned this building since the 1920s, and they watched the 20th century go by from here. Jan's aunt Lonnie opened a coffee shop on this block at number 21 Mott Street in the 40s. Then the Lower East Side was more of a mix of people than it is now. Lonnie's was a coffee shop that had nothing to do with Chinese food. It was hamburgers, cheeseburgers, uh, club sandwiches, lime rickies, cherry cokes, egg creams. Uh, you mentioned egg cream to people today and they don't even know what an egg cream is. And it was predominantly serving the Italian kids from Transfiguration Church and the Chinese American kids who didn't want to eat Chinese food. It was here for about 25, 30 years, I think. The Lower East Side back then was a very different place. I really believe that people didn't see color and race as such a big deal. In this building, the way the tenement buildings are, two apartments would share one toilet and it would be a door on either side. And the story that my father used to tell me is that when he was a child, the next door neighbors were Italian and the grandparents didn't speak any English and you know, my father's father didn't speak any English. 
you know, in the summertime, there's no air conditioning. All the doors of the building were open. All the windows were open. But the two doors between the two apartments that connected the toilet were open, too. So if they were talking, you would hear them. And if you were talking, they would hear you. Or if they were cooking, you would smell cooking Italian food. And if they were cooking, they smelled Chinese food. The two families never fought. They never really had quarrels. Um, it wasn't the kind of thing that you would say, oh, my God, how could you possibly live like that? But that was the Lower East Side of a very long time ago. Your next stop is just across the street at 20 Mott Street. Did anyone recognize that piece of music as an aside? And Rachel, I'll get to your question. Yeah, I didn't recognize music because I'm a lover. The piece of music is from, uh, it's from Apple's Garage Band Jingles, <laughs> which uh, I hear everywhere now because it's, it's a free piece of music. And, uh, and one of the things I wanted to point out, just in, in these, these tours, you're, you don't have that freedom that you have on public radio of being able to use whatever piece of music this is. It's all licensed. You can. There are a lot of you know opportunities and ways to get music off the web these days. But, but uh, it's funny. I, I hear these tunes now all the time. I have two questions. I did miss the first part of your presentation, so forgive me if you One is how did you find that company that you interviewed? Two, you don't show his face ever during this thing. And uh, if you don't. Why is that? Well, um, I'm not really sure where I could because they're they're on an audio player. Um, and walking around. So what's this picture? This picture is of the place that you would be standing. Yeah, okay, I see. So forgive me on that question. That's right. Oversleep, oversleeping. <laughs> but how did you find that guy? He was amazing. Uh, you know, I, he, he works in this store. It was about being on the street. It was about being, interviewing the people who are there. So we went and we, we popped into stores and said, could you talk to us? And we, we set up appointments with people. And we also said, who would be the right person to talk to? You know, who is the person in this neighborhood that's most influential, and we found some really interesting people. And and Chinatown is it's such an interesting network because it's about uh, they got established in that way uh, partly because you know they were legally had to stay in those neighborhoods. I mean that's the story of San Francisco Chinatown, um, but also they established these networks that were that were about control and about helping people put money together and give them loans and things like that. So, so there is still this network of folks that you can tap into. So um, quickly, don't tell the obvious story, that, that, that exact thing. Talk to the people who are there. Ask them who the most important people are to talk to. Um, uh, yesterday we went on a, uh, when we were talking about art, someone was asking me, okay, so who, how do you find the right person when there is, uh, to talk to when you can't talk to the artist, when you can't talk to the, the most immediate person. Uh, and um, there's this, this great example of that when at the um, High Museum in Atlanta, there is a Julian Schnabel painting in the gallery. And there was this African-American security guard who stood across from this painting every day, all day long. And they talked to her and she had this amazing story about like what it meant to see this work by an African-American artist in the gallery, what the symbols were, what the colors meant to her. And you got, it became the most popular stop on the tour. People were getting this really unique experience out of that piece of, uh, piece of audio. Uh, so back to Space Center Houston, and I've got another example here. And this is from the tram tour of the space. So this actually is a, a tour, a tram that leaves the museum and goes over to the actual Johnson Space Center and drives around the, uh, the space. And you can see up in the ceiling there, there are uh, speakers. 
So it's mono speakers outside blasting, so the sound quality is not going to be so hot. Uh, we had to highly compress it because of some strange system that they had, uh, and memory was still at a, uh, at a premium. So we had to have very squeezed MP3s uh, playing on these speakers. But this is kind of the opposite of like playing to what you can look at. This is what people are looking at. You're taking a tour around this site, and it's the actual site, but you don't go in this building. So uh, this, is, this is the type of thing I ended up doing for the tour. This is the Apollo 17 command module. It brought astronauts Gene Cernan, Ronald Evans, and Harrison Schmidt safely back from the moon. It's a piece of history, the last vehicle to fly to the moon and back. What you're looking at now is my home, my spacecraft. Astronaut Gene Cernan. It is actually the spacecraft we lifted off the Earth in, flew to the moon in, the one that circled the moon while I took the lunar module and landed on the surface, uh, and the one that brought us home. It's uh, very nostalgic for me to stand here occasionally, as you are now, and, uh, and look at it. All in all, I spent a great deal of time on that 13-day mission in this particular spacecraft, and I know you're looking at it, you're going to say, uh, my golly, that's small. Uh, and three people lived in there, and yes, we did, and yes, it is small, and yes, you notice there's not a bathroom and a shower and a freezer and an icebox, and uh, it was more like camping out. If you look straight through the hatch that's open, you can see uh, there's an area that we call the navigation bay. There's a sextant, there's a telescope down there. We had to uh, use those instruments to uh, find the stars, and we had to tell the computer exactly where those stars were so that we could navigate to the moon. Uh, it's a uh, tried and true system, and it, it certainly worked. Walk around to the other side of the command module. If you look on the underside, uh, you can see the heat shield, and that's a heat shield that literally, like charcoal, ablates or burns away when we come through temperatures, uh, as I remember, three, 4,000 degrees back into the Earth's atmosphere. I felt like I was on the inside of a, of a comet. That one was a stretch. <laughs> yes. When you're, when, you're, when you're producing audio for that kind of atmosphere where they're three and over speakers posted in their ears, do you have other considerations about what other sound may be around? So thinking about a boat tour that I was on in Baltimore where the, 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 the audio came over speakers just like that, and they could layer it in things like boat sounds you know, I, I'm guilty of doing that very thing. I'm going to repeat the question because uh, I've been asked to for the tape. But uh, the question is: is how do you um, how do you produce with the natural sounds that are occurring uh, in mind? And uh, I think actually the the uh, the walkthrough that we used to we just required that that you go and try the audio experience out in the space before before putting it out in the world. It's just something that, that is absolutely necessary, both for timing, but also for finding things like that. Um, I did that I did that on a cruise of San Francisco Bay. I'm like, well, this is about the bay. We're gonna put in some seagulls. And like, you're, you're already competing with seagulls. Um, so yeah, it's just absolutely necessary to go and experience it in the space before you, before you put it out there. the same lines you had music in the back there and they're outside with these speakers and the sound around how do you decide when and when not to sound like that in case? well uh you know i try to be pretty subtle 
with music. I try not to, A, manipulate people with it too much. It's, I think you, you, you don't want to, again, you're a guest in people's heads. You don't want to make them, them, force them to feel something. I've, I've often felt like, like you can't do a film score for a lot of these. You don't want to create that sort of, sort of experience. Um, the how you do it, choose to do it in space you know uh, mostly I, I i think i end up using it in situations like this to mask other sound problems <laughs> i have to admit you know it, it it creates some somewhat of a sense of uh of drama but it's pretty subtle in on these speakers um i think it just it, it, i use it as a framing device too you know it's it's it, that bed helps to communicate something and to smooth out the production. Um, I think even, I'll work with the limitations of the speakers. That, you know, you probably wouldn't even hear that music all that much when you're out there in Space Center Houston getting the tour. Uh, so, just commenting on that stuff, play to the senses. I, the smell of space is so memorable, you know. If you come away from that tram tour with anything, I think that's the one thing you end up remembering. And that's one of the things I experienced when putting together uh, you know, all of these audio tours, there's like two or three things that you come out with in the end, and they're almost always something that plays to the senses. Uh, in the Chinatown stop, the, the smell of the, or, and the sound of the Chinese family cooking dinner over here and the Italian family cooking over here and how that would mingle in the space between, and you would hear them talking in the other room. Um, play to the senses. I'm going to... Should I skip this one for time? I think I'm just going to play this one. Yes, we've brought a garbage can into the museum. In Disneyland, everything you see, down to everyday things that no one thinks about, like a trash can, is designed to be part of the story. This later came to be known as theming. The one on the right comes from Adventureland. And once you're in Adventureland, you're surrounded by that story. And nothing that you see in there should take you out of that story. Walt was very strict about that, very clear. He didn't want anybody in a Tomorrowland costume walking through Adventureland because that would take you out of the story. That would take you out of the, the, the reality of that place and time. Now turn around and look at the objects behind you. My first summer Disneyland was open. I worked with the Disneyland photographer. Well, this particular day we had uh, Simon in Frontierland, so we drove all the way around the park, and there was a chicken plantation restaurant where New Orleans Square is now. The photographer stopped the car behind the chicken plantation, and in about two seconds, Walt was on top of us, and he poked the photographer in the chest really hard. I thought he was going to knock him over. And he said, what are you doing with that car here in 1860, we had blown the whole story with a car in 1860. It didn't work. Well, that was a great lesson for me in theming and, and how the story was so important. Theming of restaurants down to their architecture and menus was rare back in the early 50s. Disneyland started a trend that continues today. So just thinking about, about this theming, uh, Going back to music and production and all that, I, I do think that I've always had a love of Disneyland and this sort of theming experience. There are times when it's it's appropriate to be subtle. There are times when it's appropriate 
to create a mood, to really create a sense that that person is in that space and use sound effects that are not of the site and create a sense of place. Um, and any reflections on that? Anyone who wants to comment on that? I think that's a fairly unusual thing coming from the, the NPR point of view. But, but it, I think for audio tours, it does work. And here's a, here's a, I don't have a sound example for this, but this is a perfect example. We were hired to, I was hired to do an audio tour of Madame Tussauds in Las Vegas. And they were seeing it as, you know, an add-on to the price. They weren't seeing it as like, how are people going to be able to use this in this space? What I ended up doing was taking, I couldn't get an interview with George Clooney for this. I took material from entertainment tonight and you know TMZ and all these types of places that had done interviews with them sliced it up and then I invented a character who was an entertainment news reporter who was walking you through and introducing you to all these people and talking to them putting the mic and I you know put it together as seamlessly as possible to give you that experience um, the other side of this though is that it bombed. Nobody took the audio tour because audio tours are not appropriate in a lot of places. People don't want that experience in this kind of space. The, 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 Madame Tussauds is the only wax museum. Their whole goal was that you can go and interact with these people as this woman is doing, that you can put your arm around them and all that. People in, a, in, a, in this type of space don't want to be guided, don't want in, uh, education or instruction or that kind of experience. So um, I, that's just a word of warning. When you're putting, when you're doing this, when you're putting out tours into the world, when you're interpreting things, give people, A, give people the chance to breathe. There have been times when we put these tours together where we said, take your headphones off, go experience this thing. Um, go, go do something, you know, separate yourself from that world. And there are other times when it's just not, it's not gonna work, it's just not gonna be the type of experience people want to have. How, how do you kind of determine that? Like when, when it, it would be an add-on and when it would kind of be a distraction? You know, I think you just know in your gut from how people move around. Uh, I think one of the things, you know, we used to do, uh, back in the old days, it was all cassettes. So it was a linear experience. We would do linear tours where you'd time everything out and you'd walk through and that would be your whole experience winding through an exhibit or a space. Um, with the advent of digital, it became random access. So you can type, you walk up to something, you type a number in, and that gave that freedom uh, that people can say, okay, can choose to listen to a couple things and then take the headphones off and do other things, or they can choose to listen to the whole thing. Um, so that, that makes a difference. Um, the, I kind of missed the old days, actually. When we, when we made the switch from the linear tour to the random access, you, we, we lost some of that ability to tell a whole story because you couldn't assume that people had listened to something beforehand. You had to reintroduce speakers. You had to remake points. Um, what was your original question again? <laughs> well, if you had to, say you were going to pitch someone on, you know what, I yeah. this space, would you, right. you want to get a new client, you say, I think this space would really benefit from an audio tour. What, what do you say to convince them that their space is like, you know, and you could do it. Well, you, you know. argue from kind of anywhere. Right, right. Assuming there's some stories to tell, but how do you, how do you know that you've got the right client, you know, and that it's not a space like this where actually nobody's going to do it. I mean, is there, are there right. I think, I think you just look for where, um, 
where I think you know in your gut if it's going to work or not. Uh, I think the experience is something that they're. Um, that I think actually it's the people that you're talking to. Like if you're talking to a public relations type person or a marketing person for a museum or a hotel or something, then you you tell them they're looking for add-ons. You know, they're looking for something that's going to give their guest an experience. Um, so I think that's the. I think you take that that angle again. It's about the user experience. Do you think that that person is gonna gonna get an enhanced experience from from the tour? So did Madame Tussauds want to want to have one of these, and they just had the wrong idea? Yeah, oh. yeah. So if they were gonna pay us to create one, you yeah. know, we did it. Um, I have a question, actually, because you said um, sometimes these people, your clients, they want to give the guests their, an experience, but this kind of ties into a question I had earlier, and that is that. Some of the people that are funding audio tours, like museum uh, people, my experience has been it's been really difficult for them to see it as a point of view from the guests. They want to promote themselves or their institutions, or if you're trying to get government funding or public funding, uh, you said earlier, try to uh, interview the pre people that were there and not the people who studied it. But how do you deal with the fact that sometimes the people who are paying you to do these audio interviews want to be promoted in the picture right you know actually I didn't run into all that that all that much so the question is uh, how do you how do you convince places to uh, to not use themselves as the voice and use uh, other people that are uh, more appropriate as the interviews and I think um, yeah I didn't I didn't run into all that that all that much but uh, you know it, it gets to the client relationship where uh, you basically just tell people, you know, through your own expertise, show people this is what what has worked well for us in the past, um, and uh, it's always in negotiation with the client. Uh, uh, we use end up using inappropriate narrators because the the client wants that, um, but you know, very often they'll listen. I mean, w one thing that we learned early on is that um, we did some studies, and it's in, in museums in particular, uh, people. If you time them, people will spend about 12 seconds, on average, with a, with a piece of art. That's the, that's the average time a visitor will stand in front of a piece of art on their own. And with an audio tour, that average goes to 90 seconds. And so that will convince people both in two different ways, both that there is some educational value to the experience and that you actually don't have a whole lot of time to talk to that person because they're going to lose patience. Uh, anything over 90 seconds to two minutes, people start, their attention wanders, they're going to start walking around. Um, so just going for the Madame Tussauds uh, thing, um, use everything that you can find. You know, the, there was no way I was going to be able to get interviews with all those people, so I hit the web, I, hit the, I went out into the world, and I found uh, all kinds of sources to, to pull together and license them from all kinds of different locations. I'm gonna skip that one. And I'm gonna go right to talking about art, as we were saying, uh, we're talking about the art there. And this is, a, this is a, an example. These drawings may strike you at first as scribbles, scratched at random onto the paper. But artist Tara Gear is more deliberate in her technique than you might notice. I've always drawn. For a long time, my goal was sort of to draw Bambi. That was, that was the best I could do. And then as I got older and did a lot of drawing, I found that the things I was trying to do, all these certain kinds of recognizable objects, 
I felt like I was leaving out of a lot of information to make them. Even you make a landscape, you make a still life, you're trained to draw recognizable things. And I kept thinking that I was leaving out stuff, you know, leaving out stuff that didn't make sense. It was part of how you make, how I was trained to make a recognizable object. And then I got really interested in what that was. You know, the thing that kind of doesn't make sense, you look at a landscape, you see something that's sort of blurry and weird. And usually to make a drawing that people understand and like, you leave that part out. I just became more and more interested in the blurry and weird part. Or, you know, you look at ice cubes melting. There's a lot of visual information in that that doesn't really make sense. And that's sort of what I started drawing more and more in the past while. You know, for a while I have a studio right across from a bus depot and for a couple years I drew buses constantly. Part of drawing for me is it's more like surfing than a science experiment. Instead of putting things together that you know come out with a certain reaction, it's like surfing, not that I surf. But something comes up that's not really you that you're just trying to ride somehow. I sit down with, with a pad and my pencils and I'm looking at some little corner of the table, say, and there's so much visual information there and I'm trying to record it and trying not to make something recognizable. I try to avoid all the details that make it recognizable, so I'll just draw in all the other details and something happens. It's kind of like, I don't know, I feel like the world is this beautiful place filled with detail and... I'm just trying to make note of that to the best I can, which is completely nowhere near sufficient. <laughs> you can find more information about Gear's work at terragear.com. Okay, now, uh, that was two minutes and 45 seconds. Did your attention wander at a certain point? Yeah, and this is, this is a good stop. I think that, that like, the interview is really in, pretty engaging. And I think that uh, I felt I felt at a certain point, well, where I started thinking about something else. Rachel again. So when people went to look at this art, you didn't tell them, go look at this picture and then look at this picture. They were just looking at whatever paintings. I mean, I know the first painting. Yes. You went and you directed the first painting and said, this may look like a bunch of scribbles. This is actually in a, a Four Seasons in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And they have a collection of art in, in that in a, a various Four Seasons have these different collections of art. And yes, so this is a, an add-on experience that people can, can get. Uh, one of the ways I always frame these kind of tours is you have an introduction. And introduction sort of explains where you are, you know, what you're going to be listening to, and then you're let loose. You're right, And you can walk around and they walk up and there's a label on the wall with a number on it and they can, they can listen to that. Or they get a map that has numbers on it that shows them where to go. Uh, so that's how that experience works. Yes? While we're on the topic of experience, um, have you found a way to make those that sort of more, I mean, for example, for I'm blind. So have you found a way to make it more accessible for a blind guy who's traveling maybe without a friend who say, hey, that's 36 or whatnot? You know, it's uh, it's difficult. Uh, we I haven't had a whole lot of experience with that. And, and Tenna has done tours for the blind, and I, I haven't worked I haven't worked on them in particular. Uh, I think we've 
Yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to how to make that accessible. The challenges of uh, distribution and accessibility are still are still there. It's how do you how do you make this work for everyone? No, just to follow up, it, it, it's you know the museum do a lot of exhibit design, and one of the deals there is you're dealing with a lot of people with a lot of different styles and a lot of different abilities. Yep, that's one specific example, but it's a it's a broader question. How do you meet those those challenges? You know, tours. I've worked on tours with descriptors. That we've had a series of descriptor stops for uh, for people who are sight impaired that explain, uh, talk about what you're looking at, like a like and a movie. I guess what I mean is, you know, for example, you got one one person there who really knows a lot about the place. You have one person who's totally ignorant. You oh, you know, really, you know, you see people care about different. You have to serve a lot of people in a very quick amount of time. You know, I I think that's true, but I think you also assume a certain level I, I think there's I think there's a general audience that you know NPR is used to serving uh, where you have a, a certain level that you can explain things without making them sound uh, without you know I, I don't know how to explain that that instinct but I do feel like we as 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 public radio folks have that sense where who you're aiming at is this general audience and if something's technical you explain it uh, in a way that isn't insulting, and you, you just shoot for that level. Um, I was wondering how you think your narrator's voices, because I find generally when I hear audio tours, there's a kind of sameness to them, and I'm curious what kind of leads you into that direction, or doesn't. I mean, maybe there are other tours where there's a greater range. Right. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Okay, sorry. That's okay. Um, but the... Um, I, you know, I, I aim for a sort of a public radio sound whenever I tell people what kind of what kind of voice that I want, and it depends on the client. These are client uh, jobs, so they often choose. We have to give them voices because it's representing their institution. You know, they they want to have a voice that that sounds like them, and uh, nine times out of ten, they'll pick like a, a, a very male sounding voice. Um, could you talk a little bit about the technology that's used to sort of these experiences. I mean, we, we saw what was in the card, but sure. people are walking around. And um, do you ever use kind of hyper-focused speakers within a museum space? You know, I've never worked with hyper-focused speakers. Uh, I think they are an interesting strategy. Um, one thing we have done, which was kind of interesting with antennas, use radio transmitters. So they would, the players that we had were specially built. And if you walked into a space, there's a very focused radio transmitter that would trigger your player to play a, a sound. Um, the technology, it, it's an interesting topic because it's, it's kind of, that's how antenna got where it was. The antenna manufactures its own players. There are a number of keypads. And they had the CD-ROM player technology that would, it was this, we called it the brick. It was this big black case that would hold 50 hours of audio before anybody had those kinds of players. Uh, it was way before your iPods and your MP, standard MP3 players. So that's how they ended up cornering the market. The market has changed because MP3 technology and smartphones and everything have opened up that whole thing. So the, that, that hold on the market is gone. Now everybody can produce an audio tour and distribute it via podcast. And um, I've talked to a couple people here working a lot with apps and uh, GPS triggering and things like that to, um, and and websites that that geolocate audio to trigger you know for people, um, 
so there's a lot of new technology that has made that accessible, and I think that's partly why we're all here. The, the, the world opened up from these two kind of monolithic companies that were making, making all this audio. Does that answer your question? Well, I'm just curious about what you happen to be using most recently. You know, I haven't actually worked for Antenna for several years now. Uh, when you're doing audio tours? When I do audio tours today, I'm mostly uh, doing, using podcasts and downloads to distribute. Um, I see some people will download. People will download from home, or the, the, there are ways to trigger, if you're using an iPhone, there's a way, you know, ways to open up the store and go directly to the podcast to download and play. And it's, there are all kinds of ways people are solving the problem. Um, uh, cell phone tours, this, that one that I was at the lake in Seattle is completely on cell phone. Uh, so there are labels in the ground in the parks that you walk around and you call up and then you enter a number. I think it's wonderful that we are freed from these uh, um, piece of technology that belong to the antenna and audio tours and you can do podcasts and downloads. But it seems that along with podcasts and downloads, as you said, the other option today is cell phone tours, which anybody who's got a cell phone can take the tour any place without yep. having to download first, but the sound quality is horrible. Sound quality is terrible. And so you really have very little that you can uh, flexibility with doing any kind of sound design. Yep. If you do anything besides a voice and maybe some music, you've, you know, you've lost, you've lost them. And I wonder if you've dealt with that, what your strategies around it, have you ever done cell phone tours? Yes. Um, and basically, I just surrendered that ability. You know, you, you can't communicate. Uh, music rarely works. So it's, it's all about the voice. It, it, you know, I kind of like it in a way because it puts that focus back on the interview and the, the, the person that you're listening to and making that experience a connection because you, you are completely limited by sound design. One of the ways that we experimented on that lake tour, which is actually um, an art project rather than uh, we got it funded as an art grant to do this tour. So the question is, and I'm going to get into this in a second, is about art versus... Uh, versus craft, you know, what is the, what makes that art versus being interpretation. And one of the things we experimented with on that tour is using the, the power of voice to um, create a, a more uh, esoteric experience, cutting up the voice, layering it in ways that, that chop together an, an interesting commentary, you know, kind of like a little more like what we were hearing uh, yesterday with the sound barriers. I'm curious if, um, I mean, is there just an assumption on the client's part that their target audience has access to this kind of technology? I mean, when you talk about people listening to things on their iPhones or on their cell phones, that's only a certain portion of the population who has that kind of technology. It's a great point. It's it's still very small. The, the number of people using iPods, and, and it, when you look at the numbers, it's still like, you know, under 5% of people who are using cell phones. It's something like three, I think. So the, the assumption there is, I think they're just, you know, they're trying to get their stuff out there and they're, they're looking for the, the methods that are out there. And so the, they produce for that audience. Um, but I think the cell phone tour, the, the standard cell phone tour where you call up a number and then you can, you punch in a number and get interpretation, everybody can use that. So I think, um, but again, there's that trade-off. You don't get the sound quality. You don't get the ability to communicate directly. So you have to end up focusing on producing for tiny little speakers. 
Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, client, your relationship with your clients and the back and forth that goes on or, or negotiation that goes on on how to get it done and what to do? Well, um, You know, I'm not sure I can talk in general about that. I think that it is it's, it is just a negotiation. We're, we're often, uh, you often just have to do what the client wants to a certain extent. You give them the materials, you educate them and say, here here is what we have learned in the past, works very well. Uh, what I would always do at Antenna was we would have a kickoff meeting where you would play samples of other productions that you think would fit and are appropriate to that site and say, this is the kind of thing we've done in the past. And in that way, you can usually get people excited about that type of interpretation. Then you give them some ideas. And then there are script drafts where people review and will you know, wedge back in the name of the funder and the name of you know, various, various opportunities like that. So um, it's, it's always just a give and take. You, know, you work with them to, go to, to get in the stuff that you think works best. And I think usually if they hear it, if they, if they see the stuff, that is going to, uh, like the smell of space, that is going to really you know, grab people and make people interested, they will be like, oh, that's great. And then you just kind of frame that with the stuff that, that, they, uh, that they insist has to be there. Are you going to talk at all today about how much you charge and how you go about figuring that out? I had that question yesterday. Uh, I think uh, the way I normally charge, and I'm not going to get into to dollars, but I, uh, the way I normally figure it out is by by audio stop. We usually say, you know, this is going to be, because the, the interpretation for each object, each site is going to be the investment. You know, you, you invest the time in getting the right thing for that moment. So we'll say, like, if we're, if we're stopping at uh, 20 different sites, I come up with a number per stop and I multiply that. Could you give us a ballpark of the range? I mean, obviously, we don't. Right. Let me just say, in general, that you know, there's not. This isn't a huge business opportunity. <laughs> Stay out of it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the, the, you know, it it it, can, it really depends completely on the site um, and and the kind of budget that they're working with and the kind of production that you're putting into it. Um, I I think that. This someone came up to me and said, you know, you're doing the kind of dream job that I want. I'll just say that I think I don't think there's a lot of there are jobs in this. I think this is the type of thing that you can do uh, to supplement the kind of income that you work on, the kind of things that you do. Um, you know, go out there and do it. You know, interpret sites, make people. You know, make these kinds of projects for people. There isn't the, the business has become so so fragmented now, and there isn't a whole lot of of audio tours out there to do. Um, uh, not to discourage you. What, what I'd like to encourage you to do is that I think interpretation in space is really interesting. I think you can create experiences and, and there's, there is room now out there in the world to make, uh, through distribution, to make really interesting projects and to interpret places that people would never have been able to interpret. You can now you know, get people, get sound out into the world. So. Please do do that. Don't build a business around it. That's my that's my recommendation. There are a lot of people trying to do this kind of thing. Um, for the for the downloadable 
uh, apps and podcasts, do you find that clients want to offer pay you for your work and then offer it for free, or do you or do they do it as like a pay like pay five ninety nine and you can hear this audio tour as much as you want? Uh, you know, usually they, they it's about getting it out there for free. So um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of. Uh, uh, most of the, the payment is coming from people who are doing this for public relations, for interpretation uh, of, their, of their site, to attract people as a, as a tourist destination. Uh, in the old days, you know, uh, with, with museum exhibits, um, they'll often, if you have the players and all that to rent, you know, then it becomes a whole, a whole deal. Do you see any potential for, you know, just doing a tour of a space and offering it up for like, you know, like an iPhone app, offering it up for dollar ninety nine and seeing if you can get enough interest and enough people who want to hear about that particular place again there are you know there are a lot of people trying to do uh, city tours and things like that and uh, I, I kind of think that you know if if you have the time and wherewithal then you you can there are now ways that you can make money doing that probably it's not going to be a whole lot and it's the time that you put into making the tour is not going to probably not going to pay off the amount of uh, of, of money you're going to make from it. Yes. Do you have an example of, of something that you feel is, is pushing the boundaries of, of this medium? Well, I do have one stop here that I'm going to play, which is um, is from uh, an art project that I that I did. And I'm going to go ahead and skip to that, and and that's this is one way where. Um, it's another way to get money, actually, doing this type of work, just to be crass about it. But you know, we're talking about everybody's interested in like, can you make money making making audio tours and doing interpretation? One way I found is is framing it as art. You know, taking it out of the the craft uh, level and getting funding from uh, from art institutions. There there are people now the places that fund traditionally fund like visual art that are now looking at this kind of work as something that they would fund. This project is called Invisible Five, and it's a project that um, a friend of mine who is a visual artist got this idea to do, uh, to do this project and got a grant, and uh, she had never done audio before, but she had this idea. So together we worked to make this project happen. Um, and I'm gonna play a sample now. So just to frame it a little bit, the, the project is about environmental justice along the uh, Highway 5 route in California between San Francisco and LA. And uh, I don't know if you, if you don't know anything about environmental justice, um, the idea is that um, it's a movement of people who, are, who find that pollution and uh, you know, toxic dumps and things like that are more often cited in poorer neighborhoods. And so, is this is it justice to be uh, dumping this pollution on people who uh, just because they can't afford to fight having it in their backyard? So this is a driving tour. So you can download it to an iPod and play it in your car, or we had a we burned it to two CDs that you can you can take as well. Um, and so you're given this map uh, as a PDF to print out. You download a series of MP3s, and then they're tied to different uh, places, sites along the route. This is the first thing that you hear. So um, the only context that you're given is what I just told you. You have a CD, you have the website that explains what the project is about, and then you hear this, you put this in and you're in your car, and this is the first stop that you hear. Leaving San Francisco.
my name is Marie Harrison. Uh, my particular area of concern is Baby Hunters Point. Coming across the Bay Bridge off to the south, what you'll notice first of all are several large smokestacks. Uh, one of the largest being Marant, which is less than an eight minute walk from the Hunters Point power plant. Both located in the southeast sector of San Francisco, both extremely heavy polluters, both in dire need to be leaving our community, if I can say that. At this particular moment, we're engaged in a battle to shut down an old, outdated power plant. The lifespan of a plant is 25 years, ours is 75. I'm not standing for it. This plant is not crossed a major field from houses. It's not um, off to the back side. It is located directly across from homes. We're right there. It is listed as one of the largest freestanding sources of pollution within San Francisco by itself. I want to bring on Regina, another one of my mothers. I want you to, to listen to my mothers very carefully. They may not speak English as well as some of you, but they have a point to be made. They live it and breathe it every single day. They deserve justice, and this is not just to have them live and to have their children sick daily behind this plant. Hello, my name is Regina Peters, and I live at 220 West Point, and I hope they shut down the PG because my, I got grandkids, and they, they get sick off and on, I get headaches, my stomach's upset. So, so I felt like I was able to take a lot of the audio tour expertise I learned. You, you heard she gave a direction. She said, you know, this is, this is off to the, you know, can see these smokestacks off to this way. You get a sense of location. But I th I'm, hopefully, I think in this one, we got a little more artistic. We were able to breathe a little bit. Uh, one other advantage we had was that people are in their car, and this is a long, boring trip. So we were able to, we stretched out a lot of the material. That, that stop goes on for a little bit longer. So the, um, the, there, was, there was more room to sort of experience a, something. In a driving tour, what do you do about the problem that people are driving different speeds? Do you just give them a next landmark, <clears throat> have them press pause, or how do they... You know, we had to let some of that go, <laughs> I have to admit. You know, uh, basically people had to, uh, to, we had a series of MP3s, they were all named certain things uh, for, for each site, but we, we just let people interpret as they wish. You can even just listen to the tour without uh, even, just straight through, without even uh, stopping at different locations and really getting, still getting the experience. Uh, there's not a lot of pointing out. You know, I, I feel like you can actually go to the website and listen to this and get the same, get a very similar experience. It's just a little more richer because you're seeing the landscape that people are living on. I've done a driving tour with that same problem of how do you, when you're talking about a certain place and certain people, you know, where are they? And, yeah. And gave it up and made it just sort of like this documentary as you're driving through space. But I hear from, you know, when I've offered driving tours other times, and I hear from clients, well, how are you going to make a stop for this place when everyone's driving different? I you know, have an answer to it. I actually did make one. I've made a couple that way uh, back in the old days with antenna and cassette players where the cassette, we did give instructions, pause the cassette now, and then you know, restart when you see this marker. Uh, so it can be done. How long is it if you just listen to intent? Yeah. This one, it's, it's about three hours long. 
So it's, it's a lot of material, it's a lot of interviews. Um, and, and again, you, uh, I don't know if you'll notice also, uh, I, I didn't make the point, the narrator is gone. There is no narrator in that tour. And I, I feel like, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Janet Cardiff's work. Uh, Janet Cardiff is, is, her name comes up a lot in the stuff. I actually never heard one of her, her tours, but it sounds like it's a very personal experience. And for me, the art comes from hearing people, from not making it about, about you. And, and, and I found like as soon as you put that narrator in there, as you were pointing out, as soon as you hear that narrator and doing that narrator thing, suddenly you're like, well, you know, I don't, I don't really like this so much. It's, it, it, it feels forced. The, for art, for this artistic medium in particular, I feel like that narrator goes. You let people say, let people be the, the, uh, the art and the interpretation. What, what is the website for that project? Oh, it's called, it's invisible5.com, invisible in the number five. That's pretty much it. Do we have any more questions? I think we have about uh, 10 more minutes for some questions, way in the back. Yeah, I have a question about, um, you sort of touched on this with the wax museum example, but how much room is there for humor in these things? Because uh, it seems like you, there's a, there could be an opportunity to play with you know, narrator as a character and I guess it depends on the client, but uh, are you ever tempted to sort of play with the idea of being self-conscious about the fact that it is an audio tour and sort of parody that format a little bit? Sure. I mean, uh, kids tours in particular. We did we, when I've worked on kids tours. I wrote a kids tour for uh, Space Center Houston, which was uh, was all in a character voice. You are. Um, how many people have seen uh, Northern Exposure? The the guy who plays the astronaut in Northern Exposure. Uh, I actually got him to do the voiceover for it in the role of you know a drill sergeant from NASA who is coming to train you as a cadet into the experience of being being an astronaut there. So uh, that was that was a lot of fun. I've, I've done those kind of tours. They tend to come across as kiddie. So we there are other tours for adults that that I have produced and worked with uh, with character voices. Um, yeah, I think tongue-in-cheek would be the way to go for that <laughs> because uh, it, it does tend to feel very forced and, and actorly, again, because of the intimacy of the medium, I think. Uh, but it does, it, I think it, it depends on the location. It depends on what you're interpreting. Madame Tussauds, you know, who, you know, who needs to be serious at Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in Las Vegas? So, uh, so those kind of locations, you can, I feel like you can play it up. Music and licensing a little bit. Do yep. you find that you create a lot of your own music so that you don't have to go through that process? Or do you really want to use songs that you like and put those in? You know, I have done my own composition. The, the Terra Gear Scribbles we were listening to was a piece I, I wrote. I, I often find it's, it's time intensive and there's a lot of production to do. So uh, I use uh, production music from various sources on the web uh, a lot of the time. Uh, Again, you know, they, they can be fairly cheesy. There's not a lot of really good subtle stuff out there. So I tend to balance it. Uh, but yeah, I, I do some of my own composition. And do you ever go through the process of trying to get copyrighted music? No, never. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just too tedious. And, and I found at, um, when I was at Antenna, when we would try to license, say, audio from a movie or from uh, some major artist, they just won't even return your call. You're not you're you're not on their radar. You're you're such small potatoes. They're not even gonna gonna worry about you until they sue you, right? Because then they're gonna get the money. What about the example the example of uh, 
talked about using George Clooney from TV interviews and things like that. That, you know, uh, that took a lot of work. It was a lot of investment getting, getting, reaching the right people and getting, getting the clearances on those. So yeah, you're right. That was an unusual one for me. Uh, I found it was the only way to go in the, in the circumstances. Uh, but you know, public radio. Public radio, I licensed a couple fresh air interviews for that project and uh, that, was much, that was much easier. I saw a question in the back, I think. Yes. Um, the FCC just has released tens of megahertz of uh, unlicensed low-power spectrum, much like uh, garage walls, and this would be a perfect application for it. And um, the equipment that will come up off, off that will probably be uh, introduced in the next year or two. But whatever it is we're talking about with cell phones, whatever the distribution is now, I think that will drastically and radically change over the next uh, 25 months. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that. And in the front here, you had a question? No. Yeah. Same question? Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, uh, I hear. Well, Just a, one quick question. Why did you use a woman as a narrator in the Civil War Museum piece? You know, that was a deliberate choice by them. Uh, and, uh, and also, I think it was nice because there are so many male voices in there. It was a good contrast. Uh, I thought, uh, I, I've often done that when I was producing a tour and thinking, well, all my interviews are men. So let's use a, a woman to narrate so you can tell the difference. Because sometimes that would happen where the narrator and the interviewees you know, all sound the same and it gets, it gets muddy. Any other questions? Thanks for coming. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs>